Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Um, I missed you. Um, I hope you enjoyed your holidays and your Christmas season, but it's good um, to be back worshiping with my church family. Um, we're going to turn this morning to the book of Titus, and we're going to be starting a new series. Um, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at this book. And really what we're asking is, what does, or the main idea of this book is, what does the gospel have to say about the Christian life? Um, and so that's why I'm calling this series The Gospel Basics, because this book really gets down to some key basic ideas about how the gospel impacts a couple areas of life. And the first one is what the gospel has to say about leaders, specifically in the church. Um, and so that may make you think that you can get off the hook, right? Because you may notice in Titus 1, well, there's a lot about elders and what that has to mean. So good, this is just, you know, for Homer and Mike and Dale and the pastors, but this isn't about me, so good. Um, but no, this is for all of us, right? All of God's Word is useful for growing in righteousness, not just parts of it, and all of it is for all of us in various ways. Um, but first off, that's because we're supposed to emulate our leaders, right? What is required of elders and of leaders in God's church is not any different of actually what's required for all of us as believers. There are things that all of us are supposed to do and to live out in order to be like Jesus. Um, but of elders, it's necessary. But we're all called to do it. And there's some other reasons as there we'll get into. But so basically what we're going to look at this morning is, man, what does the Bible have to say about gospel leaders? Uh, of how should the gospel change the way that leaders in the church look like compared to leaders in the world, compared to leaders in other places, or compared to leaders who are not changed by the gospel. So we're going to be in Titus 1, and we're going to look at, you know, gospel leaders, false gospel leaders, and finally ourselves. Um, so if you would, turn with me to Titus 1, um, and stand if you're able, and we will read from God's Word. Paul, a servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, be, you might put what remained in order. And appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith." not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. For to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray. 
Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, that you would um, show up among your people and do things that only you can do. Would you push out the distractions of the, the cold of the day, of the week, of the things behind and the things ahead of us? Um, would you allow us to hear from you? Would our ears be open? Would our hearts be pierced? Would our faith be strengthened? And would our spirits be encouraged by the word of God? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So first we're going to take a look at gospel leaders. And what we'll see if you're taking notes in your blank, is that gospel leaders are revealed by their righteousness. Gospel leaders are revealed by their righteousness. I'm going to back up a second, give you some context on the book. You know, why are we studying Titus? I wrote about this a little in the newsletter, if you've got that from Wendy already or wrote it. Um, one of the reasons I chose this book is because it really, again, focuses on the fundamentals, on some core things in our faith. And Paul writes and tells Titus, who's one of his disciples in verse 5, hey, this is why I left you in Crete. So he's left Titus behind. Paul's going on again. He's continuing kind of in his missionary journey. And he's leaving Titus in charge. And he says, I'm leaving you behind so you can put what remains in order. So he says, hey, I left you in charge of the church on that island. I started, gave you a good foundation, but now it's up to you. You're in charge. You take the reins. And here's what you need to know. Here's all the stuff I got for you about how you're supposed to build the church up. What should the church look like? It's kind of the basics of how to apply the gospel and everything about Jesus to the church. Now, if you want more background on this book, you know, like where's creed and what that has to do and time and a lot of other things, I'm going to talk about that on Wednesday night. I'm just kind of going to experiment um, with doing that. I'm not, it's not going to be a second version of the sermon. Um, as you notice, when we go through, as we go through books in each chapter, there's tons of stuff in here that we just don't have time for. Um, they're things that maybe they're interesting, but they're not the main thing. Um, and so on Wednesday night, that's what we're going to do, is we're going to kind of look at some of those other things that we haven't had time, or we don't have time to get into, because I'm, I'm choosing to do that. So we'll try it with Titus for these three weeks, and if it's great, maybe we'll keep doing it. If not, then, well, let me know nicely, and we'll do something else. Um, but that's what we're going to do there. But the main thing you need to know is that Paul is giving Titus these instructions, because he's putting him in charge. And he begins with, okay, what are the kind of leaders that you need? So appoint elders in every town. Again, you notice the elders is multiple. So like this whole passage isn't about plurality of elders, but that's Wednesday. We're not going to get there. But it's an important question of what kind of leaders does the church need? Okay, Paul's not there anymore. Now it's just Titus, and he's got to figure out different leaders. So the church is just beginning. It's new. Well, who are you putting in charge to grow the church, to build the church? It's really important. It's in an, its infancy, the foundational stages, right? You don't want to put the wrong person in charge. They could kill it. They could ruin it. They, they could mess it all up. So we got to get great leaders. So what kind of leaders are you going to have? Right? We think, well, I want rock star elders, right? I want champions for Christ. I want people who are going to build this church and expand it and help this grow out and reach the whole, the whole island of Crete. That's what we want. Well, when Paul goes through and he gives a list of what to look for in elders. I'm going to read it again. Just notice what's in here, but also notice what is not in here. Because there are a lot of stuff that we would put in our lists that Paul doesn't put as his, that God doesn't put in as his. Above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination, an overseer, God's steward, above reproach, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not drunk, not violent, not greedy for gain, hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. 
and must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so he can give, sound, give instruction and sound doctrine. This is all about character. This is all about righteousness. Gospel leaders in the church are supposed to be people who are righteous. That you can look at, well, who, who should be a leader? How can we figure this out? How are they revealed? Well, they're revealed by their holiness. They're revealed by their righteousness, by how much like Jesus that they are. Paul doesn't list the things that we do. Right? If you're giving advice or if you went and bought or pulled any of those books on leadership off of my shelf of what kind of leaders should the church have, they're going to say a lot of other things than these. If you went to a big conference, they would say things like, well, conventional wisdom, you need entrepreneurs. Right? You need type A personalities. You need go-getters. You need people who are going to get things done, who can build stuff up from scratch. We definitely want some leaders who are charismatic, right? We need great preachers. That's what we've got to find. Get people that aren't boring. We're going to make you fall asleep and fall out of a window like Paul. Right? You need people who can explain the word. We need extroverts. We need people who are going to go out and draw unbelievers in. We need someone who can do good outreach and build a crowd. None of that stuff is anything that Paul says. Those aren't bad things. But Paul says, gospel leader, man, you're going to find them by their righteousness. Because the church and the people of God, we cannot define anything, but we especially cannot define what leadership looks like using the world's terms. If Jesus really is God, if the gospel really is true, then it changes things. And if we look for elders and leaders like the world does, we're going to end up in trouble. And in fact, I think that's part of why the church finds itself in so much trouble today, is because we have done that. And it starts with above reproach, which is a good summary of righteousness, of what gospel leaders should look like. What does that, that mean? It means you, can, you should be able to look at one of these people, look at their life, and if you were trying to bring them down or accuse them in front of everybody, you would have a really hard time finding some charges that stuck. You'd have a hard time thinking of some really bad sin that they're guilty of. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they're sinless, but it means that their sin is kind of so small and so benign that everyone would go, well, yeah, but look at them. They're, they're above reproach. They're, they're really righteous. You should be able to point at these people and say, that is a righteous person. That is somebody who is holy, who looks like Jesus. Yeah, not that they're perfect, but they are, should be above reproach. The next one, it goes and says, husband of one wife. Okay, so some take this to mean, oh, that means this, we can't have people who are divorced as elders. That's kind of a, a normal understanding of that. It's been an issue in churches before. But this is not as narrow as Paul saying, okay, they need to only be married one time, and, and that's it. And check the box, and then we're good. No, 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 it's much more than that. This means somebody who is sexually righteous, who's faithful to their spouse. These are not they're not participating in the rampant sexuality of the culture. It's not about their marriage status. It's about their righteousness status. This would mean they're not somebody who's addicted to pornography or they're going to the temple to visit the prostitutes, that they are faithful in their life. And again, his children are believers, not open to charges of debauchery and subordination. Okay, as a pastor's kid, as a pastor who has kids, I have some complicated feelings and relationships with this verse here. I've seen people um, beat pastors, including my father, over the head with this verse. Or he'd be able to say, oh, you, you can't do that. You can't act like that. Your dad's a pastor. Look, it says if you keep living this way, then your dad shouldn't be a pastor anymore. He's disqualified. We should fire him. Okay. Is that what that means? You know, I'll admit possibly, maybe. I don't think so, but it, it could be. But really what this is getting at is that the character of a leader, the character of an elder, and, and their child's behavior is 
oftentimes, or at least sometimes, a reflection of who they are to some extent. Okay? It doesn't mean that, hey, if there's a prodigal child or someone, one of their kids isn't following Jesus, then they're disqualified, you know, because obviously they're a terrible parent because really good parents who love Jesus, all their kids grow up to love Jesus. We know that's not true. That's not how life works. That's not how the gospel works. We're not saved because of who our parents are. We're saved by grace and grace alone. But if you have an elder or a pastor or a leader, and they have lots of children, and none of their children want anything to do with Jesus, and none of those kids want anything to do with the church, that probably tells you something about the real life of that person. I mean, as a pastor, I saw him all the time. I, I saw him at his highest and his lowest, Right? So I saw what my dad said on Sunday, and then I saw what he actually lived out Monday through Saturday. And the reason I'm partially a pastor today or still even love Jesus is because I knew my dad was the real deal. I knew that he lived out what he said on Sunday. He wasn't perfect. We fought all the time. We had issues. But I knew he loved Jesus. He wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't perfect. But it was real to him. Now, if I saw at home that everything he said on Sunday meant nothing, then you bet I'm not going to be at church on Sunday. But I want nothing to do with Jesus. That's what this is getting at, is that you've got to look closer. It's, these aren't meant to be a legalistic checklist of rules, but it's showing that, hey, gospel leaders are revealed by their righteousness. Again, it, it says, you know, God's steward. Leaders in God's church should understand they're stewards. It's not their church. This isn't my church. This isn't any of the elders' church. This is God's church. We're just stewards of it for however long he leaves us here till he takes us or moves us on or does whatever it is God wants or takes it from us. The leaders in God's church understand it is not theirs to do with what they want. That it is God's. They got to do what he wants. And often what God wants isn't exactly what I want either. This goes right along with the next one. They must not be arrogant. Leaders in God's church, they don't have to, and they should not be arrogant like the world. Should be humble people. Stewards are typically more humble than kings. They know they're not in charge. They're not arrogant. They don't think they have all the ideas, have it all figured out. They should be humble people. It should surprise you in some places. The ideal would be that you go to a big church, right, or even a mega church, and you have a hard time figuring out, hey, who's really in charge here? Because they don't walk around as if this is all theirs. They're arrogant. They must not be quick-tempered. Gospel leaders shouldn't be people who are known as angry. They shouldn't be people that you have to walk on eggshells around because you know if you say the wrong thing or if you bring up that topic, they're going to blow a gasket. That's disqualifying. These are people who should be patient. Even when everyone else is angry, they're patient. They should be people, it's a quality or qualification in ministry because there are people who are always angry, right? You can think of people who are always angry at something. It doesn't take much for them to start ranting about whatever it is the thing or they get angry very quickly that they seem normal and then one second they're angry the next. Those are people that God says, You're, these are not supposed to be leaders of the church. Or a drunkard, the gospel leaders, they shouldn't be drunks. This doesn't mean, I don't think this means they can't ever drink, but they shouldn't be people who are constantly getting drunk. And really, you can expand this out again. This doesn't just have to do with alcohol, but I think addiction in general. That leaders in God's church are, are, shouldn't be people who are stuck in addiction. Okay, if leaders have to be above reproach, a drug addiction, an alcohol addiction, a pornography addiction, any kind of addiction, you, you fill in the blank, that would 
seem to be disqualifying. That would be something that, really whatever kind of addiction you want to put there, I think. They're not violent. Gospel leaders are supposed to be people who are not known for being violent, but gentle and lowly, like our Savior. Jesus was not a violent man. Even at his arrest, when Peter swung the sword and was ready to fight, Jesus said, put your sword away, and healed the ear of the people who were there to arrest him. Leaders in God's church don't solve problems with their fists. They get angry and yell. They're not known for violence, but for peace. And even peace in the face of violence. And this big one, this one could be a whole sermon series, I think, in general. They're not greedy for gain. Not greedy for gain. I don't think this just means that they're not greedy for money, but you can probably think of that, right? You can think of a name, and we could go down a list of a bunch of pastors that it seems, or leaders in God's church, it seems like they just are in this for the money. They're on television, and they're wearing $1,000 sneakers, and got their jets, and say, hey, give money now, call this number, and send me more money. And their whole ministry seems to be built around that fact. God says, no, the leaders in his church aren't greedy for gain. They're not in this for themselves. But really, I don't think this is just about money. This is any kind of selfish greed. This is those who, who want to be in charge. They want to be an elder. They want to be in charge of stuff so that they can make the decisions. So that things can go the way that they want it to go. They're, they, they're greedy for gaining power. Or they want to build a big platform. They want to sell a bunch of books or go on a conference circuit and go around speaking. They're greedy for gain for themselves. And those who are greedy for their own gain, man, they, they will and they often do destroy the church in pursuit of their own gain, in pursuit of their own idols. They might build big ministries. They might even lead thousands of people to the Lord, but oftentimes it's just an accident because what they're really after is just power and influence. And God might be gracious and allow that, but God tells us this is not the quality of leaders should be in his church. Hospitable. Man, hospitable. How high would that be on your list? Wouldn't be high on mine, if I'm being honest. Even as I read this again, I kind of had to stop when I got to that one and go, huh, that's weird. That's pretty high on your list, God. There's a lot of other things I would put in front of that, right? If you're on a pastor search team, we just did two of these recently, right? Bring me here and Rob. Okay, I don't think either. I, I know with Rob, we didn't talk about being hospitable. I don't know if you all talked about it with me or thinking after Brad retired, man, what do we hope the next pastors meet? You know, I really hope they're hospitable. That's number one on my list. Okay, I don't think that was any of us. It's higher on Paul's list than sound doctrine. Why would God do that? Because it's important. This doesn't mean, too, this doesn't mean that they're great hosts. Okay, don't picture a perfectly decorated home, somebody who makes immaculate snacks, and just the most delicious dinner, and, and their table is set great, and the children are all behaved. That is not what Paul has in mind. That's not what hospitality is throughout the Bible. It's not somebody who gets the best things off of Pinterest. This is somebody who lets people into their lives, that their home is open. But it's not just that their home is open for whoever wants to be there. If somebody knocks on the door, they open it up and let them in. If somebody walks in their office door and says, hey, can I interrupt you? The answer is almost always, yeah, of course. They have margin in their lives for people. It's not too busy. They're hospitable. They're, they're open. They invite the poor into their homes. They're also lovers of good. 
They're defined by loving the good. I, I love this phrase because there are plenty of people, plenty of even leaders in God's church that aren't really lovers of the good. They're more the haters of the bad. And we're defined by the things that they don't like rather than the good things of Jesus and the gospel and his word. They're defined by their enemies, by who it is that they don't like, that they're always mad at. They're always hateful and angry at all the things wrong in the world. It's almost like they're entertained by all the doom and gloom and everything wrong. Like that's what they really love is just getting mad at it. It doesn't say they hate the sinful things. It says they love the good Instead, gospel leaders are people who love the good, that they see the beauty and the wonder in the world that God has created, and they love it and are drawn by it. They love the good things of God. That when you see them, they're defined by the loving, pure, and holy things that reflect our Savior. They're also, they're self-controlled. They don't fly off the handles. Self-control is a Christian virtue, right? The world believes that, hey, if you've got desires, do whatever you want to fulfill them as long as no one gets hurt. It's not self-control, that's, that's, you know, repressing things. That's bad, that's horrible. Why would you do that? But no, as believers, we, we control ourselves. We deny ourselves things even if we want them because it's not about us, it's about others. Right? Being hospitable, there's, that doesn't mean that they love to have people in their homes necessarily, it means that they do it. When someone comes in and knocks on the door, it doesn't mean, oh, you know, I really wish they would go away and leave me alone. But you know what? I'm going to be self-controlled and let them in and try and show them the love of Jesus. It's self-control and small things like that. We, we give up our desires and our wants for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel. They're upright, they're holy, they're righteousness. And you should be able to point at these people and say, that is a holy person. That is somebody who walks with Jesus. That's somebody who knows Jesus. And the disciplined part, it doesn't mean that they're emotionless, but they're, they're in control of their emotions. They don't fly off the handles and later come back and say, oh, sorry, I was just really upset or I was really sad, so that's why I had that kind of outburst. It's now they're, they're disciplined. And then finally we come to this, well, they hold firm to the trustworthy words. It's the first thing about doctrine that we see. But it's about them holding to the truth. Holding, the, holding on to God's word. Holding on to the truth from Jesus and from the apostles. They hold to the creeds and the belief of what Jesus preached and taught. But even here, it's not about intellectual belief. It's about their character and their righteousness. It's not about their, the depth of their knowledge. It doesn't say that they've studied a lot of theology and they got it. It doesn't say that they can, you know, go through and they can give you all the books of the Bible in order, that they know the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you put them on a map, they could point you to where all the biblical events happened. It's not about, it's, instead, it's about whether or not all of that theology is actually an anchor in their life. Do they hold firm to it? There's a profound difference between somebody who has ideas about hope, who has ideas about sound doctrine and the things of God, and to somebody who holds on to it desperately because it's all that they have. There's a difference between being able to say, yeah, I believe we go to heaven when we die and we'll be with Jesus forever when we wait for him to return, and somebody who is on their deathbed desperately clinging and saying, I believe that in a few moments when I die, I will be with Jesus. That is different. And gospel leaders are revealed by their righteousness, not their knowledge. It is, they believe the right things, but they don't just believe it up here. They believe it in here in their hearts, and they hold to it desperately. None of these things are really that fancy, right? None of them are necessarily what we look for in leaders. We don't often think, man, I really hope the pastor, you know, is, is disciplined and, and not drunk and hospitable. Often, what do we think about? We think about things like talent, and competency or charisma. 
You know, God, but God wants us to think about righteousness. We don't think often what we do is we, especially visiting a new church, if you did that over a break and you go to a new place, what do you do? You, you evaluate the, the pastor you're listening to based on how good at speaking he is or how charismatic he is. Now, it's not necessarily evil or wrong, but often that's the only way we do it. We just kind of assume character, but leaders in God's church are supposed to have gospel character. We don't find our leaders just by, well, who's the most gifted? Who's the best at, at speaking? Who's been to seminary? Who's the most educated? Instead, it's, hey, who's the most righteous, Titus? That's what I want you to look for. Who are the people that are most like Jesus? Who are the people that are following Jesus the most? Who are the people that are letting the gospel transform every part of their life? When you look at how we evaluate leaders, we don't do that. You can, on your own, just go look up some job descriptions for pastor postings and just read through it. You're going to find a lot of stuff that's not on here. Because ultimately, we type all those things out, but usually deep down, what we, what we really want is we just want people who are really gifted and awesome and talented. And we just kind of assume this righteousness stuff where we take it for granted instead of, no, this is to Paul, to God. This is central to what leaders in his church should be. That we find them, they're revealed by their righteousness. So that's, that's half of the puzzle. But what about false leaders or false teachers, right? How do we smoke them out? How can we identify whether or not somebody really is a gospel leader? Well, false gospel leaders are revealed by their wickedness. They're revealed by their wickedness. We'd expect it to be doctrine, right? When you often think of false teachers, what are the things you're first thinking about? You're thinking about people who are teaching the wrong things. And that's not wrong. That's partially true. I think about those who are twisting God's word, but what we, and that's part of even what Paul warns about. But primarily when you look at Paul, he's concerned about the character of these leaders. Again, he doesn't give Titus a, a doctrine test. He doesn't say, hey, Titus, here's a good creed. Here's a doctrinal statement. And make sure you just go through the quizzes, okay? Ask them these 15 questions. And if they can say yes to all 15, then good. They're, they're true leader. Their doctrine's great. It's not that. Again, he turns to their lives and how they live. You see this in the key in verse 16 at the end. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Their works reveal what they actually believe. Their wickedness reveals that they don't really hold to the gospel. Reveals that they're preaching a false gospel. These false leaders, these false teachers, they might claim to know God. They might even call themselves Christians. Paul, again, he says, they profess to know God, but deny him with their works. He doesn't say they profess to know God, but when you look closer, their theology is bad. They deny him with their bad theology. So say they deny him when you look closer and see that they use some wrong words and they twist the scripture. It says they deny him with their works. Their wickedness reveals the truth. But typically, you would think the opposite, right? We would normally think about false teachers as being revealed with bad teaching. And that's partially true, but that's not all of it. Paul calls these people, right, you know, subordinating or insubordinate in 10, empty talkers, deceivers. In 11, they teach for shameful gain. Their wickedness ruins them. They're false teachers because of how they live as well, because of their sin. Often I hear this objection really from believers, right? When you have pastors or Christian leaders who get kind of removed um, from leadership for one way or another, or they're fired or they resign in disgrace. Maybe you find out that they were having affairs. Or worse, they were abusers. Or they preyed on people or women. Or they covered up abuse of children. 
And you hear things like that or any other manner of wickedness. And I'll hear people object and say, well, you know what? It's too bad because their doctrine was really good. You know, their doctrine was really solid, which usually by that we just mean they agreed with me on whatever other little particulars I had. That's often what we mean. You know, they were a Calvinist, so their doctrine was good. Or if you're not one, well, their doctrine was bad. That explains it. You know, no, that's, that's not it. You know, well, we can't throw away their books, right? Because their words were really true and good. Because so, their doctrine was great. So it's too bad that wickedness stuff. That, that was, they're, they're separate things. We act like they're disconnected. But to Paul, no, 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 no. What we do, uh, what we see is that theology isn't just an intellectual thing. What you believe is not just up here. It, it impacts what you live and what you actually do. God's Word says no. God's Word says their behavior defiles it. Their works show that their theology is bad. This is a theme we'll see all throughout the book of Titus. We'll see it in chapter 2. He begins and says, hey, teach sound doctrine. And then the rest of it doesn't seem like anything we would here if you signed up for a class on doctrine. A lot of it is righteousness and behavior and how we live, but that's next week. What Paul says in 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciousnesses are defiled. Their wickedness corrupts good theology and proves that it's wrong. It makes it defiled. It takes even what objectively by itself is good and true. You know, you affirm these tenets, these creeds, and you say, yes, I believe that. I affirm all the right doctrines. You know, they can say with their mouths, I believe the Bible. Every word is true and inspired and inerrant. And I trust in the power of the gospel. Yeah, Jesus is the only way to salvation. And if their lives don't reflect that, then they've missed it. Because deep down, we live out every single day what we truly believe. We do. But we're, we deceive ourselves often. We might say that we believe things. Oh, yeah, I trust Jesus. He's the only way to salvation. And yet then we put our faith and trust in other things. Oh, sure, I believe Jesus. Jesus says we're supposed to serve, and that's what God's leaders are supposed to do. And yet I'm going to build this whole building and church and structure around serving me and making sure I don't have to serve anybody. We'll pause for the train. What Paul says, and this is, this is harsh and this is hard, but he tells us that these false gospel leaders, they're really revealed by their wickedness. They're revealed by what they do. And, and you can see in here too, there's some things that they are teaching that is wrong, but ultimately, how do we find them? And so we don't just look for false leaders by, you know, printing off a list of here's some buzzwords. Or go up to, you know, a pastor and make sure you quiz him on these four doctrinal things and make sure he gives the right answer. Because if he gets the wrong answer, you can throw him away and ignore him because he must be wrong. Often I've had that happen where people come and they ask me a question. They're asking, hey, what do you think about this thing? And I can kind of tell. It's not that they're actually interested in it. They're just trying to decide if they trust me or not. Trying to decide if I'm a false teacher or a good teacher. And as long as I give the right answer, then it's, you know, woohoo, okay, you're one of the good ones. If you're the wrong answer, then, oh, you're one of the bad ones. That is not all that theology is. Too often we're more concerned with what people believe out up here than what they actually live out with their lives. Let's turn to ourselves. The question we need to ask ourselves, that all of us do, is what kind of leaders are you empowering? Or which kind of leaders are you empowering? Are you empowering gospel leaders or false gospel leaders? You might be tempted to tune this passage out, right? Because, you know, you say, well, I'm not going to be an elder, don't want to be an elder, not interested in that, pretty sure I couldn't do it. You know, I don't really even want to be a leader in the church. 
very down the road, but so, you know, I, this isn't as relevant to me. Well, I, I disagree. Okay, again, just partially because this, these are all things. Everything you see in this list of what elders should be and what false teachers should not be are things that we need to emulate just as followers of Jesus. But also, all of us have a responsibility to raise up and empower the right kind of leaders. Leaders who are righteous and who are following Jesus. And opposing leaders who are not. Every single person in this church, outside whether you're part of our church family or not, we, we all of us empower leaders. All of us do this. You might not have thought about it in these terms, but we do. Okay, we all follow people. Okay, if no one's following somebody, they're not a leader anymore. They're just, you know, kind of wandering around by themselves, talking to no one. Okay, but when we choose to follow people, when you choose to, to plug into a church or attend somewhere, you're following someone. When you choose to buy certain kinds of books, you're empowering that person to be a leader. When you choose to read people's writings or, or follow them in social media or all of these things or podcasts you listen to, those are small ways that you are empowering people. The question we have to ask is, man, what kind of leaders are we empowering? Or are we empowering the right ones? Right, so in, in this church, and to some extent at least, right, you're, you're admitting just by being here that you're, you're putting... You're willing to follow Jesus alongside me and Rob and the other elders here? Whether you like everything we do or not, which I'm assuming you don't, because I don't like everything I do, so I don't know why anyone else would. Right? But if everybody left, if all of you left, and it was just me, Rob, and Mike, and Dale this morning, and Sydney when he's here, and, and Rob, yeah, it wouldn't really be much of a church. Maybe our wives would come, maybe not. Right, so even that, so part of just your attendance, your showing up is empowering and cultivating leaders. The kind of church you choose to attend lifts up some leaders over others. So what kind of leaders, and what do you expect from your leaders? What do you expect from pastors and elders? Because our expectations are huge, right? Do we expect righteousness or do we expect giftedness? Do we expect really impressive things? Do you expect, you know, that you're just going to get amazing preaching or people who are just smart and super visionary and have the best ideas and build the most incredible things and do something no one else has done before? Is that what you expect and hope for? Or do you expect righteousness? Do you expect that, you know, just ordinary godly people who follow Jesus and are trying to do their best? So often we, we don't like ordinary, right? Ordinary is boring, ordinary is lame, ordinary doesn't win medals or bowl games or go to the professional leagues, right? We, we want exceptional. We want awesome, we want incredible. But that expectation can often ruin places because it, it can allow churches and ministries and places to let sin go unpunished. Because we can overlook sin because, well, you know, that sin, yeah, maybe that's bad, but they're really a great leader. Well, you don't understand all the awesome stuff that they've done. So, yeah, maybe they're arrogant, maybe they're a jerk, but, you know, we're just going to overlook that. That's not as important as some of this other stuff. They're so gifted. I know many churches, I'm thinking of one church in particular that did this. They knew their senior pastor was kind of an arrogant jerk. He had a temper, wasn't very nice, didn't like to be around people, wasn't super godly, but he was a great preacher, and he drew a crowd. Because people wanted to come and hear him. And so the church grew, and it was great. 
for them. They made a continual calculated decision. Well, we're going to overlook this sin because it's not that bad because, well, they're really gifted. Wickedness isn't a big deal. As a church, man, we have to say no to that. Not just as us here at Tango, but as believers, we have to say no to that kind of thing. We have to hold our leaders, you have to hold me and Rob and our elders to higher standards. We have to care more about our righteousness and are we following Jesus than giftedness and competency and those other things. Not that they're not important or not necessary. But if you, you don't have righteous Jesus-following leaders, then that other stuff doesn't matter. Character trumps competency. I mean, ultimately, why do we follow Jesus? Why do we worship him? It's because he's God incarnate. We don't follow Jesus because he was the most talented speaker we've ever heard. And we don't follow Jesus because he was really revolutionary. He knew how to organize people and, and build up movements. We don't worship Jesus because he was so smart. We worship Jesus because he's God. Because he's righteous and he's holy. And we're to be like Jesus. Our leaders especially should be like Jesus. Not in their abilities, but in their character. Yeah, and following Jesus, it transforms us, it changes us. You can't follow Jesus and not slowly become more like him. If you are, somehow you tell me, well, I followed Jesus for 30 years and yet I haven't really changed at all. I start to wonder, well, you really following Jesus? Or not? You might say that you are, but your works deny that. Leaders, gospel leaders, their lives should be marked by the righteousness of Christ, not because they work and grit their teeth and try hard, but just because of what Jesus is doing and transforming in them. So just kind of in summary, where have you been this morning? Really, gospel leaders, they're revealed by their righteousness, not by their competency, not by their theological knowledge, but by how much they know and love Jesus. And false gospel leaders are revealed by their wickedness, in addition to bad theology, but not only because of. And finally, you know, what kind of leaders are you empowering? Not just here in Tanglewood, but in other areas of your life. And, you know, what if the church... In general, what if we cared more about righteousness than anything else? What if we cared more about obeying and following Jesus than we cared about if we had the most efficient programs, if we had the most beautiful church building? What if we cared about that more than anything else we could think of? What if we valued the people who looked the most like Jesus more than valuing the people who were the smartest or the most talented? Close us in prayer and invite our worship team um, to come up and lead us in worship one more time. God, I just ask that you would be with us. Lord, would you help to, to change the way that we view and evaluate people? Lord, would you help us to not, to not evaluate people based on how competent or gifted or awesome they are at things, but instead of the way that your word tells us to? by how righteous they are, by how much they, they look like Jesus. And Lord, would you help all of us? Lord, those here who, who know you and love you and say that we're followers of you, Lord, we want to be like you. We want to be holy. We want to live lives above reproach and not be greedy, not be trapped in addiction. We don't want to be arrogant. We want to be hospitable and love the good. But Lord, we know we can't do those things on our own. We need you. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, would you come and would you help us? Would all of us be people who are righteous? 
who look like you, not because of how awesome we are, but because of how awesome you are and how awesome what you do in us is. And we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship our Savior together. I hope you're putting your trust in Jesus. Um, I want to invite you again to come back on, on Wednesday night. We're going to go back through Titus 1. If there's something that I didn't cover, if you have a question um, and want to know more, if you want me to talk about it on Wednesday, just come and ask me and let me know. Um, let me know before Wednesday so I have a chance to get you a good answer. Um, if not, otherwise we're going to go where I want to go further into it. Uh, but here's our, our benediction um, from the end of Ephesians. You know, peace be to you, brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and break grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. God bless you. Go in peace.